Hi, church. That was vigorous, I think is the right word for that uh, greeting. Um, So glad you're here. What a privilege it is to just be a part of... Don't you wish he, like, fell on his face there? Wouldn't that That would have been so much fun just to watch you tumble off the stage. Shoot. Next time. All right. As I was saying, before you rudely interrupted me, uh, it is a good thing to be together. I just count it a great privilege to be a part of this family and to be able to come and enjoy God together, open His Word together and, like, hear from Him. And uh, God's going to speak to you. I trust that. And so... Pray that you have uh, the hearts and the minds to receive the good word from Him. Those of you who don't know me, maybe this is your first time here, my name is Rusty. Uh, Do you think thoughts? Is there anybody here who doesn't think thoughts? We have one. Kind of curious what you are thinking then, if not thoughts. 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 A study was done in the last year. I don't know how you measure how many thoughts a human being has on average in a day, but I guess they measured brain activity. And they discerned that uh, the average human being has 6,200 distinct thoughts every day. Now, I'm sure that's just a wide range of thoughts, you know, kind of good, bad, ugly, positive, negative. We think a whole lot of thoughts. And the thoughts we think are powerful. Like there was a guy um, who coined the, 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 the phrase, the power of positive thinking. Have you heard of that? A doctor by the name of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, he wrote a book appropriately called The Power of Positive Thinking, 1952, which kind of launched this idea into the mainstream. Uh, it essentially, he's made the case that people can change the future, uh, future outcomes and events simply by thinking them into existence that your thoughts had that sort of power to, to bring things into existence. You know, the positive thoughts promoted self-confidence and faith in oneself that naturally led to this belief in the law of attraction, as, um, as the author writes in his book. He says, when you expect the best, you release a magnetic force in your mind, which by a law of attraction tends to bring the best to you. If you think it, it will happen. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that, although there are some Christians who have kind of embraced embraced this in in more of a religious form. It's called um, uh, manifesting, maybe is a word I'm hearing more frequently. It's um, believing that by having enough faith, you can bring something into existence, right? Uh, You can determine an outcome if you just had enough faith. You know, there's a verse we're actually going to look at next week, probably the most famous verse in Philippians. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've probably heard that verse before. Maybe you've claimed it. Maybe you've seen a football player wear it on their eye paint underneath. I can do all things through uh, Christ who strengthens me. What you're going to find out next week is that doesn't mean anything like we normally think that means. It's not this idea that if we just have enough faith or if we think positively enough, certain things are going to happen. So that is not Paul, it's not what Paul is saying here when we come to this verse 
that probably you've heard before if you grew up in church, maybe it's the first time you're hearing it, but kind of a well-quoted verse um, in church circles. We're going to kind of spend our time primarily in verse 8, okay, when Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, admirable, never really sure how to say that, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and the peace of God will be with you. Actually, the God of peace will be with you, it says. You might hear those words and go, okay, yeah, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the power of positive thinking and he's not, we're going to see that he's not. But he is talking about the power of thoughts. He is saying that our thoughts matter. Your mind really matters. The thoughts you think really do make a difference because your thoughts shape your emotions, shape your attitudes, shape your desires, shape your actions. It often begins here, right? Which is why Rusty, when he watches a cooking show late at night, goes to make himself a sandwich because I wasn't hungry until I watched the cooking show and now I'm hungry and I'm in the kitchen making a mess and because thoughts shape desires, shape our conduct, right? This is why advertisers will spend millions of dollars trying to put thoughts in your head. So this afternoon, there's a Super Bowl. It's a big football game. And there's going to be advertisements. Some of you, you're only going to watch it for the advertisements, right? And this year, a 30-second spot for a Super Bowl commercial is going for $7 million. It's a lot of money. But people are willing to pay it because they think, man, if we can just put certain thoughts in front of people, we can get them to feel certain things and do certain things, right? Because thoughts matter. We learn this really, you know, young as kids, right? You watch a scary movie, you have bad dreams, So, Paul is saying here there's a connection between our thoughts, our desires, and and our our emotions, our conduct, and the peace we experience, right? This is his claim here. If we think certain things, we will experience the peace of God, which makes sense, right? If you feed your body certain things, it, it impacts the way your body feels, Things that might taste good at the food court, I get sucked into it every time. Mm, Chinese fast food, deep fried, layered in sugary sauce, and I pay for it. Just like what we ingest into our body impacts the way our body works, the way it feels, the way it functions, it's no different within the mind, he says. The things that we feed our mind impact... Um, our desires and the things that we feel, right? Impacts our ability to experience joy and peace. Our mind matters. It's the first thing we want to see here. Now, to really understand what Paul is saying, you have to kind of connect it with what he said in verse, the verse before verse 7. We looked at it last week, right? We looked at overcoming anxiety last week and how we're supposed to um, combat anxious thoughts by bringing our prayers, bringing everything in prayer to God, and if we bring everything to God in prayer, we can experience uh, the peace of God, like he says in verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, and the peace of God that is the peace that God has won for you through His Son Jesus, 
right? The knowledge that through faith in Christ, we are forgiven and that we belong to God, that God is with us, that God is for us. That peace that has been won by Jesus will transcend all understanding. You ever pr- I find myself praying that. You know, someone's in the hospital, oh Lord, have them to pray, give them a peace that transcends understanding. It's one of those churchy things. You ever pray that? What does that really mean when we say a peace that transcends, surpasses understanding? It means the ability to believe that our victory lies in Jesus Christ and is secure in Jesus regardless of what our circumstances look like. That our joy and our peace is secure in Him no matter what happens in our life. And so this peace that we know we have with God through Christ becomes this guard for our hearts and our minds, guards us against anxious thoughts and fear. Our minds are guarded by God's peace. Which I guess kind of begs the question, well then, do we have any role? Do we have any role in living in that peace? Like, can I just expect my mind to be guarded, to be safe from harm, to be safe from Satan's onslaught, regardless of what I put into my brain, even if I kind of fill it with filth? And, and so Paul's going to go on in here. He's going to say, absolutely not. Your mind is guarded by God, but it matters what your mind thinks. He says, Our relationship with God is not to produce passive, lazy minds, but active, disciplined minds that seek to think certain thoughts. And so we have this command, think these types of things. We don't normally think of our thoughts as things that are commanded, and yet that's what we have. Think certain thoughts. Now, when I hear that, that's both encouraging and it's challenging. As I've often said lately, the Bible normally does both. Like when you come here, I hope that you're both encouraged and you're challenged. There are places in our life that are comfortable that need to be challenged, troubled by God's Word. And there are things that we bring that we are troubled with that God's Word ought to comfort. We have to be encouraged. And I find myself here being both encouraged and challenged by these words, or someone else far more eloquent than me said it. There is a glorious beauty and a gentle brutality in these words of Paul here. A glorious beauty because there are things that are true and honorable and pure and right and admirable and beautiful that we can think on, that, that will soothe and reinsure our souls. They are there to lay hold of. So there's that beauty in that, but yet there's this gentle brutality in the fact that that requires something of me. It requires that I I have to honestly assess the values that I hold most dear, assess what I'm doing with my time, assess what it is that I'm watching, where I'm going, who I'm with, What Paul is saying here here is we are to take responsibility for our thoughts. So hear that. You are responsible for your thoughts. You are not a captive to them. Now, what Paul isn't saying is, you know, know that thought that comes into your head just kind of like a bird that flies through, and sometimes we can feel kind of bad or guilty. Where did that come from? What does that say about me? Well, Martin Luther said this. He says, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. You can decide what to do with that thought. 
You can decide whether that thought will control you or whether you will control it, whether you will take it captive. And so essentially what Paul is saying here is we're not to be captive to our thoughts, but we are, uh, to, we are to take our thoughts captive. As he says uh, to the church in Corinth, these are the words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does because we're fighting a different sort of fight. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world because we're fighting a different sort of fight. On the contrary, they have divine power. These weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He says, your mind is a battlefield. There is a war that is being waged in your thoughts every single day. And we have a weapon, right? Like th- th- that war is, is th- these, there are thoughts that come that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, it says. But we have a weapon that when we use that can demolish those strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So he says that we are to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is whatever thought that comes into your mind, right, you need to take that, you need to seize it, and you need to bring it, and you need to bring it to Jesus, and you need to bring it to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to see if it's a right thought or a wrong thought, a true thought or a false thought. There's all sorts of lies that we're told that, we, that others tell us, that we tell ourselves, that Satan speaks into our life. Lies like, God doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really care what happens to you. Right? And you can lay hold of that, and you can come and you can bring that to, to the gospel, and you can, you can make that conform to the gospel of Jesus to say, no, in fact, this is the truth. And so we find ourselves thinking thoughts, lies about our worthiness or relationship with God, or maybe lies about guilt, right? There are times where we feel like maybe we, we carry this weight of guilt for things that we have done in the past, And what Paul is saying here is take it captive, bring it to Christ, bring it to the gospel. And if you're someone who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, if you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven by the grace of God. You are made new. You are loved. You are welcomed by God into fellowship with Him. You have the gift of eternal life. God is with you. God is for you. This is the truth of the gospel. To which Paul says we are to take every thought captive, every, every guilt of something that's forgiven. We need to come and we need to pronounce the truth of the forgiveness of that. Or, or maybe it's some guilt that we experience that weighs in us and we come and we bring it to the gospel and we find out, oh, no, I, I, I need to repent of this. I need to confess this. I need to make this right with so-and-so. There's something I need to do, right, to conform to the truth of Christ. We're to take captive our thoughts. We are responsible for our thoughts. Paul says, choose the right things to think. He didn't notice he didn't say what not to do. Don't uh, don't think on lies, don't think on what's dishonorable, don't think on what's ugly. Like they're they're not negative commands, they're positive. It's not just here, what's wrong about this? That's not the question. What's wrong with this, but what's right with it? It's not just about saying no to certain thoughts or rejecting certain thoughts. It's about pursuing the right ones. 
It's about creating an environment in your life where, where, you, can, uh, where you can hear and, and ponder on those things that he describes, those things that will contribute towards peace, true peace and true joy in life. So I think maybe what Paul is saying is you need to make a nest in your hair for the right sort of thoughts. You need to make a nest in your head. You have a role to create certain environments, to make choices, to draw the right kind of birds, songbirds, beautiful birds, not crows and magpies. Make a nest. Prepare your mind for the thoughts that will contribute towards the peace of God. And so then he lays out kind of what, these, what sort of thoughts we are to pursue, right? The first he says is whatever is true. Think on those things. Whatever is true. And I think Paul probably, surely has in mind here um, when he talks about truth, the, the truth of God. Well, first of all, let's just say that all truth is God's truth. There, there aren't different types of truth. All truth is God's truth because God is truth, right? God defines truth. You don't define truth. This whole like, well, that's my truth, your truth. You don't define truth. God defines truth. God is truth. Truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And God, in His love and in His mercy, he has, he has given us, He has revealed to us the truth of His nature, who He is, and what His will is for our life. Right? This is, this is like the most incredible act of love. Him sending His Son and then giving His Word so that we can know God, we can know what is true, that which will bring about life and joy and peace. So I think when He says whatever is true, He certainly has in mind, think on those things that conform to the will of God as revealed in His Word. Meditate on the Word of God, for that is true, right? As Jesus said in John 17, 17, when He prayed, He said, Father, sanctify them by truth, your Word is truth. God's Word is truth. And so, th this is the truth. The gospel is the truth by which um, everything else is to be grounded, conformed to. All other thoughts, all other conduct. This is our canon. That was kind of an old theology word. I think it's a, a Greek word, not canon, that shoots a cannonball, not C-A-N-N-O-N-C-A-N-O-N, -N -N -N, which is a Greek word that means a measuring stick. The thing you measure everything against to see if it holds true, if it lines up. He says, this is our authority for what is true. Fix your mind on the Word of God first. As Paul would say to the Romans, Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. There are forces around you every single day, many forces that are trying to conform you to the pattern of the world. Did you know that? If you just have a passive, lazy mind, just kind of taking in whatever is presented to you uncritically, you will be conformed squeezed into the world's mold, the way of thinking, of living, kind of just like taking down a river. I mean, we, we, we consume an awful lot of thoughts that others present to us every single day. In fact, I, I read this recently. This is a fairly new stat, almost unbelievable. Any idea how much media the average person consumes every day? 
13.1 hours. Now, that's probably a pretty broad definition of media, but digital media, eight hours. And some of you with teenagers and kids, you're like, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. <clears throat> we are, are bombarded and give our mind to all sorts of thoughts from all sorts of places every day. He says, be careful. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have a responsibility to renew your mind. That word renewing your mind there, he has in mind kind of fixing your mind on God and the truth of God on His Word. Uh, so that word renewing is not something that happens once or occasionally. It's something that's ongoing continually. Be constantly renewing your mind, steeping, saturating your mind in God's Word like a tea bag and a cup of tea. You ever just dumped a tea bag and then pulled it right out? What happens? What's that? Weak tea. It doesn't taste all that. It, it hasn't changed all that much, right? You just dip in a tea bag. You know, sometimes we, um, that's what we do when we read the Bible. Really, isn't it? Isn't it sometimes what we're doing is all we're doing is just dipping it in and pulling it out and it doesn't, doesn't really make a difference, right? When he says renewing the mind, it means having a habit, right, of, of spending time, not just reading the Bible. It never says read the Bible. It says meditate. Meditate on the Word of God steep your mind, saturate your mind in the truth of God, and just like that tea kind of wafts out and the essence of it flows and fills the cup. So it will be with our minds. We do that through His Word, through the, obviously through the things that we, um, you know, listening to His Word, to, to podcasts and sermons and the, the, the books you read and that sort of thing. We're to be renewing our mind with the truth of God's Word, so certainly that's what he has in mind there when he says whatever is true, at least in part, but maybe not completely, right? Um, there, there's a reason that Paul puts truth first here in this list. I think there's a, there's a rhyme and a reason. He could have put it forth. He put it first. Why did he put it first? It's because, well, how do you know what's honorable and what's dishonorable or, or, or lovely and ugly or pure and impure? How do you know? It's only by the truth of God's Word and having a mind shaped by it that we're able to discern those sorts of thoughts. So this is why Paul puts truth first. All I'm saying is, guys, this is, this is paramount. Have a mind steeped in the Word of God. But Paul isn't thinking, I think, just about the Bible when he says whatever is true because there is truth outside of the Bible. Not truth outside of the Bible that conflicts with the Bible. But there is truth. The Bible doesn't, complain, doesn't, doesn't contain every single truth, right? Um, that's why he says whatever is true. Like, he's, like it's a word with, he keeps using that word over and over again, whatever, whatever, whatever. He's saying wherever you can find this, wherever you can find this around you, recognize it and, and, and like think on that. Put yourself there. These virtues that are listed here, there's eight of them. They're not distinctly Christian virtues. They're not Christian words. They're words even in, in Paul's day amongst, you know, the Greek and Roman philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, they had lists with all these same words. There's nothing distinctly Christian about these virtues. We fully see what these, what these virtues mean in light of the truth of God's Word, but these virtues are not distinctly Christian. They can be found in the world around us. They can be found all over the place if we're to look for them right? The theologians call this common grace, this idea that God 
has given gifts broadly to us, to all people, that the goodness and the grace of God is, is bestowed by Him on the world. He gives all sorts of gifts and talents and skills and knowledge that designed to make life livable, to make it good, right? Um, so I think what Paul is saying here in these verses is these virtues, they, they, they appear in the broader culture, so identify them and think on them and embrace them. There, there was a scholar by the name of Frank Thielman, he said this, he said, Christians should cast their intellectual nets widely to allow all that is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent praiseworthy wherever it is found to shape their thinking. Don't retreat from the world, rather take advantage of the grace of God where it's found in all of its forms around us, right? Don't retreat and hide from the world. Take advantage of what God has placed there, of those knowledge and insights. Because um, there's, I think maybe there's some of us, maybe we come from a certain background, there's a certain mindset that resists that, resists trying to, to find th- those truths and that beauty anywhere else, right? There's only one sort of song to sing, the worship song, right? There's only one book to read, this. You want to go get an education? What do you need that for, right? There's a certain mentality that maybe even some of us have grown up with, and if we're not careful, we will have, right, that kind of confines us, that that says that we can't look for God or the sacred outside where God has placed it too, because all truth is God's truth, right? All truth is God's truth. God is, a, God, is, God is the God of nature. David said in, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. You can go outside and you can look up and you can marvel at the stars and you can marvel at, at the, the landscapes and the diversity and you can experience the wonder of God's glory, His power, His love. All truth is God's truth. He's the God of nature. He's the God of science. So he's saying wherever truth can be found, go, seek it, think on it. He's the God of musical notation and the God of personality, of color and taste. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is am I dwelling on the truth or am I thinking on lies? Am I dwelling on the truth? That's first. And then he lists these other ones, and we're not going to go through one by one, but next he says, think on whatever is honorable. Your version might say noble, honorable. It's essentially that which is lofty, that which is dignified. It's the opposite of that which is vulgar and profane and crass. He's saying, uh, think on things that lift your mind and don't drag you down into the gutter. Um, And, you know, we are surrounded by media and messages that I think would kind of bring down the mind and the heart, aren't we? Just turn on the TV. I know I'm starting to get old when I'm starting to complain about TV these days. I find myself getting old. I'm starting to say these things. Back when I was kid, home improvement. Man, we got to watch home improvement. They knew how to make TV back then. But you know what? There is a growing crassness. I don't know if you saw the Grammys. I hope you didn't. A few of you did. I just saw the report of it, right? It's one of the biggest 
musician, Sam Smith, dressed up as the devil. The whole act was they created hell on, on the platform and, and there all, all these, you know, scantic-clad women writhing around, worshiping Satan. And this was entertainment, right? And it's just getting more overt. But, you know, there's subtleties too, right? It is so easy just to kind of check out and give our mind to the shows, the binge-watching, the Netflix, whatever it is, all this entertainment in media around us and music that maybe sounds pleasant to our ears. We like the beat, but what's the message? What are the thoughts? So I think we need to think on that which is honorable. We just honestly have to assess our time and going, where are we placing our mind? In what settings? Is, is it something, the things that we watch and do and listen to, does it lift our mind or does it drag it down? Because that has an effect. As much as people like to say, you know the stuff you watch on TV and the video games you play, we, we all know what it is. It doesn't affect the soul. And he says, baloney. Baloney, it doesn't. Thoughts become desires and attitudes and become actions. So what type of thing are we being entertained by? That's good for all of us, but maybe those like my age and, and down, maybe that's really good to consider consuming a lot of that entertainment. Is it honorable? If we were to filter out everything that was kind of crass and crude and profane, how much of it would be left? We're surrounded by, yeah, acts of, like I say, profanity and violence. And I read that the, um, a kid, when they're done elementary school, will have witnessed 8,000 murders. And, and by the end of the age of 18, 200,000 acts of violence, which I'm, I think that's a few years old. I'm sure it's higher than that now. Because you know what? I, I have a daughter. Tech, well, I have three daughters, I think. On a good day, I remember their names in the right order. But we got all these devices, and you know what mommy and daddy do too? And sometimes I'll be in a different room, and I, and I hear one of my daughters just scrolling through one of those like five-second clips, TikTok, right, one video after another, and I hear the stuff, and it's subtle. You know, the, dis, the, the thoughts that are being implanted, right, about consumerism, about discontentment about disrespect of parents, these things. What are we giving our mind to? He says, find that which is honorable, which lifts the mind and not drags it down into the gutter. And then think on that. Make a nest for honorable things. Don't you think there's a connection between the anxiousness of our age and the crassness of our speech, entertainment, music, dress, etc.? Of course there is. Think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, he says. That word lovely there means that which is pleasing, attractive, not, not by the world's standards, but like that which is beautiful, that which the heart finds beautiful. Think on that. And I like that because it reminds me that God is a God of beauty. God is a God that pursues our joy. And we haven't always been very good at doing that as Christians, right? There was a time where stained glass, art, get rid of it. Colors, get rid of it. It's going to be white, austere, ser serious, because God is serious and we're not going to laugh. Because God is serious and life is sacred. 
And so when my grandpa Peter would come to my house as a kid, we would gather all the comic books and put them on the highest shelf because grandpa was short. Never find him up there. <laughs> and my dear grandpa Peter loved the man, godly man, but he, he was kind of steeped in this, you know, probably a bit of a, a Mennonite background sort of thing, right, which said, these are the things that are of God and these are the things that were... We're not supposed to have anything to do with those sort of things, you know, beauty. And um, certainly not not humor and laughter, and so we would collect all those comic books, Archie comic books, and we'd hide them from Grandpa. And there is this pull there to try to, you know, confine where God can show Himself to us and awaken joy in our hearts. Paul would actually speak against that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. He talks about t- people in the church, church who are teaching demonic things. Ooh, what was it? Demonic things, debauchery, drunkenness. Ooh, what was it? Verse 3, they forbid people to marry. And they order them to abstain from certain foods. These places where God has designed to find pleasure, joy, beauty. They forbid people to marry in order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. He'll say a few verses later in, in chapter 6, verse 17. Um, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Who richly provides us with everything. You know what that tells me? God pursues our joy. I love that. God is interested in our joy. God, in His grace, has placed around us things that are lovely, of beauty in the world, and things that we create. And when we ponder them, we, it calls us to the beauty of God. So he says, whatever is lovely, beautiful, think on those things. What, what could that look like for you to pursue the beautiful? You know, we talk so much about maybe what we're not supposed to do, right? Rejecting the ugly. We want to reject the ugly. But that he wasn't interested in, in the negative. He was interested in the positive. Are you pursuing the beautiful? What would that look like? I mean, we're surrounded by beauty. Maybe it's, for, for me, it's being out in nature. It's going for a walk. It's seeing the landscape, which kind of thrills my heart and calls me to the beauty and the goodness of God. Maybe it's music. The orchestra, all those notes and everything together, which creates a, a beauty a pleasure which elicits the joy and the peace of God. Maybe it's good, clean laughter. Maybe it's art. You know, you, you, I'm, not, I'm not a huge art guy, okay? I went to the Winnipeg Art Gallery a couple months back. There's some beautiful stuff. You go there and you just kind of marvel at the beauty and it kind of does something to your heart and your mind. It lifts you. And I, I think we're designed for that. God is pursuing our joy. It's not just to that we're supposed to be those who um, just aren't bothered by the ugly, but we are pursuing, we are seeking out the beautiful. So we've got to take that seriously. What does it look like for you to seek out the beautiful? To find and enjoy God in it. Whatever is lovely, think on 
these things. Whatever is admirable or commendable, your version might say, which, what, whatever involves speaking well of another or another thing, it's the opposite of being offensive. And I feel like we live in a world, like this is a tough one. This is something that I think really um, numbs our mind a little bit. We live in a hypercritical age, don't we? I think everyone has their own channels. It used to be that we all watched the same news program and they told the news. But now these type of people watch that news program and those type of people watch that news program where they're talking about the people that watch that news program. Right? And people have teams and they're... And, 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 and people are delighting in sarcasm and mockery, and they're trying to score points by knocking others down a peg, whether it's news or politics or social issues or memes. You know, just a lot of stuff that if you were to look at it, you'd go, that's not commendable. That's a, that's a seeking to offend. And I think this too is kind of maybe wafted into Um, especially over these last few years, into the Christian thought life? Do we find ourselves in places, going places, in in conversations with people that are just, revolves around critical thoughts? Whatever is commendable, think on those things. Make a nest in your head that attracts in the places you go and the things you listen to and the people you spend time with that that attracts these type of thoughts. That's our responsibility, he says, to think on these things. To kind of carefully take into account these virtues so that our conduct, our attitudes, our desires are shaped by them. So we need to evaluate how we use our time and spend our money and raise our kids and watch TV and say, are these, are, these, uh, are these contributing towards thoughts that are like this, these type of thoughts that will bring about, contribute towards the peace of God in our life? Before we come to a close here, I, I don't want us to miss the connection with verse 9. Because Paul will then say, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now he's talking about his own life. Whatever you have learned or received, I think he's talking about his teaching and those two things, or whatever you have seen or heard, now he's talking about his example as he has spent time with them. He's commending himself as an example to them saying, emulate me, right? Paul is striving to be a Christ-like role model to embody these eight virtues to show them through his own life kind of what that looks like. That's why we have the Gospels of Jesus, not a bunch of lists of commands to do. We have a picture of the life of Jesus. What does it look like to live like this? So I think what Paul is saying here is that God, God uses Christian community. God uses discipleship. It's a necessity to, to, to become the sort of person who thinks these things. Thinking like this is not a solo sport. It's a communal activity. It's a communal activity. In other words, are we, are we looking to people and are we putting ourselves in relationship with people, right, who are contributing towards this, 
who are examples of this, who I can learn from, who can be an encouragement to me to think on these things because of the example of their life? Am I someone who's trying to emulate that for others and try to be that in someone else's life? I think he's He's calling them to do this in community. It's not a solo activity. You need to think these things together. Encourage one another through your own life and relationship. Where can you do that? Do you have people in your life like that? How can you put yourself in context, in community like that, where you can be that example and gain that example that can rub off on you? There are really two commands here. The one is to think these things. The other is to practice these things. So Paul is saying we need to think what we do. We need to do what we think. And then there's a promise. If you think these things and if you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. He didn't say that the peace of God will be with you. That's what he said in verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts. Now he says the God of peace will be with you if you think these things and if you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. I don't think what he means is, hey, get your act together, clean yourself up, and then, God will, and then God's going to come to you. Then you'll be acceptable to God. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying the same thing that Jesus, I think, was saying in John chapter 14, verse um, 21. When Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. The one who keeps my commands, I will show myself to them. I think what he's saying is, you know, so, sometimes we, we think, you know, when we see, when we understand, then we will do. But he's saying, no, do. And as you do, you will understand. Obey, and as you obey, obey, you will see. Don't, don't wait just to kind of see it all before you do. Do, and you will see. You will see my presence in your life. So when Paul says, and the God, do these things, practice these things, think these things, and the God of peace will be with you, he's like, if we seek out these sort of thoughts, if we take responsibility and try to create nests in our head that foster these sort of thoughts and put that into practice, we will experience the presence of God in a very real way. We will experience His favor and His blessing, His peace and His joy will be real in our life. You see, sin, sin tells us that pursuing these virtues... Like you read those things and right away you realize those things sound boring. That sounds like a boring list. Doesn't it? Isn't there a part of you that goes, that sounds boring. True, honorable, noble, lovely, admirable. You know, sin tells us that pursuing those virtues will undermine my experience of life's greatest adventures and life's most satisfying pleasures. But Paul is telling us here the truth of God that that couldn't be further from the truth. He says, in pursuing that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy in pursuing those things and in obedience to that, we will experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace and the thrill of um, a thrill in our hearts that no sin can touch. 
God is pursuing our joy. God is pursuing our peace. And so he invites us to play our part. Think on these things. What would it look like for you to take responsibility for your thoughts? So here's just a couple of questions for you to ponder. We can pray over right now and then you can take home with you. Are there practices, people, or places in your life that are hindering these virtuous thoughts? Are things you're spending your time doing? Are there hobbies? Are there relationships? Are there habits? Uh, Places you're going for entertainment that are hindering these type of thoughts? Are there things that you need to um, remove yourself from? They say no to. And then secondly, what are a couple of things that you can do to promote thoughts that promote God's peace and His joy in your life? All right, so I just preached a a mediocre sermon that went about 40 minutes. It's 11.54. I feel proud of myself. I'm going to stop. After the first service, my daughters were in the first service. My daughter came up to me at Foy and said, Dad, you, you did such a good job. Your sermon ended on time, is what she said. <laughs> Sweet. Thanks, honey. I digress. I don't want to distract you from the question here, okay? What I'm trying to say is, you heard some stuff from me. You heard the Word of God. Now, what do you do with that, right? Okay? So, you're resp- you have a responsibility to take captive your thoughts and to build a nest in your head that attracts certain, that attracts songbirds, okay? So, what could that look like for you to go here and to pursue thoughts that are true, to steep your mind in God's Word, uh, to, to pursue that which is honorable, to pursue that which is beautiful, What are just a few tangible ways that you can promote that sort of thinking? Let me invite you into a time of prayer. I'll just let you bring that question before God right now. I just want to give you a moment. Just between you and God, silence, maybe put those questions to Him and listen to see if He may begin to speak to you His will. Father, we thank you that um, you are the truth. We believe that you are the truth. Um, We thank you that we don't have to find it, but you give it. Lord, you want to be known. You want your will to be known. And so you left us your word, Lord, Uh, Help us to be those that cherish it, that steep our minds in it so that we can live it out and live in this place of peace and joy.
God, help us to um, obey this command. We have your Holy Spirit, those who belong to you, at work in our lives, in our hearts and our minds. Lord, would you enable us, empower us, give us wisdom, Lord, just to know how we can leave here and actually start practicing this. Or would you show us if there's anything that we need to turn from, anything that we've been giving time to or our mind to that is just not contributing towards this. And, and maybe in ways we can recognize or ways we can't, it's actually kind of dragging us down. It's robbing us of the joy and peace that you want for us. So Lord, if there's anything that we need to turn away from, would you show us what that is? And Lord, would you show us what we can turn to, Lord, how we can pursue and foster these sort of thoughts, that which is honorable and pure and lovely and admirable. Lord, when we leave here and we go to our homes and our workplaces and our schools and our hobbies, Lord, might you give us eyes to see those things and then just kind of hearts and minds just want to ponder on those, Lord, um, and meditate on that. And Lord, use all of that, God, just to... uh, allow us to experience in deeper ways um, this joy and this peace that you won for us through your Son. Yeah. Help us to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.